Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am the co-host today along with Clarissa Kennedy. Today, we are speaking with Jamie Morgan Reno, founder of a new food addiction recovery program called Real Food Recovery. Alongside her MBA, Jamie is a coach who specializes in rational emotive behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and internal family systems. Jamie has the lived experience of a food addict. Remarkably, she has lost and maintained 250 pounds. Yes, you heard that right, 250 pounds since her food addiction recovery in 2008. She works with RN Paige Alexander at Real Food Recovery, a program that helps people to deal with their food and weight issues from designing a food plan to unearthing the root causes of their issues. So welcome, Jamie. Thank you. So happy to be here. All right. So, you know, Jamie, we always like to start with the personal experience. So can you tell us a little bit about your history with food addiction and then, of course, your amazing turnaround? Sure. My history with food addiction started at a very young age. I really believe that, and and the research really supports, now that I understand it, supports the fact that I came out of the womb as a food addict. I was craving food at a very young age. My mom was famous for telling me and, and others that I didn't really struggle with weight until I was a toddler, but I look at pictures of me as an infant and I, it's very clear that I had a problem with overeating. Even though I was nursing at the time, I was nursing so much that the doctor actually had my mom change what she wore so that I couldn't just climb on and latch on. That's how much I was seeking either the food from comfort or just that connection itself. So that says a lot about the kind of home I grew up in and the dynamics in the home that I grew up in. It also says a lot about the sensitive nature that I was born with. Um, Deeply, deeply sensitive person. I soak up feelings like a sponge. So as I began to grow up, can I just, just I, clarify? So when you said the home that you came from, I'm assuming you mean that there was some sort of trauma or difficulty and that you needed the mom's connection more so was. than somebody else maybe. There was. Yes, there was a lot of some of the influences in the home were rageaholic. Some of them were alcoholic. Some of, There was a lot of turmoil in the home, a lot of fighting that led to divorce on my parents' part, starting at a very young age. So I was seeking that comfort because I could feel the dysfunction in the home. Okay, thank you. Sorry, go ahead. As I began to grow up, I noticed that I would just, you know, want food more than the average kid. I would be thinking about food more than the average kid. I would be craving it more than the average kid. I didn't know that those were the words, but I knew that that's what was happening for me. So I ended up going to a place where I would just use food as much as I was allowed to use food. I would sneak food. I would hoard food and I am positive I could have become an alcoholic, but at you know the age of four or five, brownies are legal and no one's handing me a gin and tonic. So I began to eat more and more and more of the food. And then when I was chastised for eating too much, I just that, that even fueled the sneaking and hoarding behaviors of me around food. 
So it got to the point where I would raid cabinets. I would, you know, I mean, I was constantly looking for that connection to food so I didn't have to feel what was going on inside of me. And of course, the foods, the ingredients themselves, those were driving that those choices of, of those foods over others. But what was it that got you to realize, oh, there's something addictive? Like you said, you didn't have the words. When did you get the words and what, what happened? What was your aha moment? Aha moment probably, again, was in my teens when I was, you know, back when I grew up in the 70s and 80s and, and early 90s, it was not, you maybe had one or two overweight kids in a class, you know, so I was always that that one of those kids. I had others calling me fat, calling me names, calling me, you know, all kinds of different things. So not only did I have in an early age, the dysfunction at home, I was, you know, a victim of bullying, severe bullying growing up. And what kids didn't take care of, I supplemented internally because I had had a, a really early tape that was given to me as a youngster from caregivers around me of not enough. So I was getting it from parents. I was getting it from caregivers. I was getting it from the kids at school and I was supplementing it myself. And the thing that never said no to me in my own young adult mind was the food. And the food was a safe place. The food was something that that I could be myself around, right? Which was all-consuming and a bottomless pit, which again, is just so linked to the deep you know, hole in my soul that I had for a couple of different reasons, right? So uh, one of them was spiritual and one of them was the, you know, the dysfunction I grew up in. So as I aged and matured past you know, adolescence into young adulthood, I really knew that I had a problem. I didn't just wear it. I knew that I couldn't eat like others. I would watch my friends and they'd push away from the table or they're like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so full. I ate half of that plate and I'm just so full. And I'd look at them like, what is wrong with you? I, how, are you how are you not eating all of that and asking for a second? I just, I knew I wasn't like other kids. I knew I wasn't like other women. So what was um, it that got you? I thought that I'd never be like them. What got me was I finally cruised all the way through into my early thirties. I woke up one morning I'm sure in a food hangover at the time. And I woke up and just thought, there's no way I'm going to make it to 40. Mm. There's just no way. So by that point, I my addiction had progressed so much. I had lost jobs. I had had major and major issues with fertility, which is, of course, a, a huge blessing now to know that I, you know, couldn't have carried a child a full term. Or if I did, it would have been lots of complications for me and the baby. And I, you know, I'd done deep damage to my marriage and had done a lot of damage just psychologically trying to understand that there was not, I thought there was something deeply wrong with me because I couldn't moderate these foods. I also was diagnosed with sleep apnea. I was diagnosed with prediabetes. I had all kinds of issues, you know, joint issues and movement issues, not to mention all the things that come from just being out in the world, 400 plus 450 pounds, where I was literally walking from and into stores and people would yell things out of cars. Or if I was out in public, they would say things to me. If I was at a grocery checkout, they would look at my cart and be like, what's wrong with you? Don't you see what you look like? People at, you know, on planes would see me coming down the aisle. If, they, if I sat next to them, they would change seats. I mean, it was constant feedback from the world around me that there was something deeply wrong with me. But what was the aha moment that made you connect? This is an addiction. When did you get that? That came in 2017. So a full, almost 10 years after I began the, the journey of the lose the weight. So I thought, yeah, 2017, I realized I was watching a talk given by Dr. Michael Clapper, and he talked about all of the ways that we show up 
in response to addictive foods. He talked about mood swings and he talked about depression and anxiety. And he talked about not only the cravings, but the psychological and emotional roller coaster. And I stopped and I, I was listening in the background as I was doing something around the house. And I just remember looking up and thinking, that sounds just like me. By that point, I was divorced and my addiction absolutely contributed to that divorce. I had lost a bunch of weight, but was still trying to moderate processed foods. I was 200 pounds down, still trying to moderate processed foods because the dietitian I worked with said, you can moderate them, have them. So in trying to moderate, I'd become a little bit of a rageaholic. I'm ashamed to say, but it's true. I had become anxious and depressed. I had become very, very controlling of my inner world and, and the cravings that tried to control my cravings, all of it. I was all over the map. And that is the moment in 2017 when I realized, okay, this is an addiction. And then I spent, just like any any good addict, I spent a couple more years in denial, <laughs> thinking that that's a very harsh thing to say, and there's no way that's true, and it doesn't apply to me, and oh, but this, and oh, but that. But I knew, I knew that it, when it hit me, it hit me like a bolt of lightning in my in my solar plexus, and my, it just, it was something very deep, and I, I knew. And so then what did you finally do to get to a place where you're now, I'm assuming that you call yourself in food addiction recovery. So what was the turning point that got you into there? What did you do differently? I, then I realized that abstinence was the solution. Uh -huh. <laughs> that, I realized that and I had fought it, right? And I, it's not even that I fought it because I was in denial only. I was, but it was also because I was being told by experts, by people yeah. who had gone to school for years and studied for years and practiced for years. This is what you should be able to do. You've now lost your weight. You can have a slice of pizza. You can have a cake, a piece of cake or a cake. You can have all the things in moderation. You can do this. So I just thought, well, okay, I can't do it. So there's obviously really something wrong with me because they're telling me I can and I really can't. So again, once I realized, okay, somebody said to me, and I don't remember who it was, or I read it somewhere. They said, you know, an alcoholic cannot moderate alcohol and, and they have to remove alcohol before they can work on anything else. And I thought, okay, I have to remove. And I didn't, I thought of sugar and flour initially, but it seemed like I'm not mainlining, you know, white sugar on a spoon. Like I'm not doing those things. So once I understood sugar, flour and salt, you know, those combined ingredients together, making baked goods, making other addictive foods, then it became, okay, these are, let me step up and look at processed foods in general, processed addictive foods specifically to remove those. And then I looked even deeper, right? So what are the grains and what are the other things that I, that I need to look at that are gateway foods for me and I need, I need to move those out. Right. So it was layers and it took, it takes to this day, radical self-honesty. So it sounds to me like you did a lot of this on your own. You didn't join a program of some sort or, or the did first you? Program, the first program I joined was in 2020. Uh. Yeah. So I had already found the addiction. I'd found the abstinence. I'd found a lot of the behaviors. I actually, you know, trial and error. Yeah. yes. Yeah. And I'll tell, I mean, I'm a student of the game, Dr. Tarman. I'm a, a student of the game. If I'm not in work or doing something with another person, I'm listening, I'm absorbing, I'm reading, I'm just immersing myself in this world of recovery and food addiction. And so anyway, the end result was that you lost 250 pounds. That's just incredible. Did you do surgery? Did you do medications? Were you tempted by those? You must have been. No. So at the very beginning, I was sat there in probably 2007 before I began. And it was the summer of 07. I remember considering surgery. And the reason that I didn't, I had this voice inside of me. And I've always had this, you know, this deeply connected voice inside of me that I've spent most of the time eating to try to disconnect from. 
But the voice was very clear telling me you will never learn what you need to learn if you change your physiology without changing what's happening here and here. And that's when I I knew and I looked into it. I had a couple phone consults. I talked to some family about it. Yeah. And it just wasn't the right fit. And Ozempic wasn't around then, but there were other meds around, but they weren't like hugely successful. Do you think you would have been tempted if Ozempic was around then? Yeah, go ahead. And the reason is, the reason is because probably eight years before, maybe 10 years before, I had started taking, with the help of a doctor, started taking diet drugs. And it was, you know, the the, the blue and clears or the the yellows. uh, I forget, you know, the names, you know, Fentramine, right? The legal form of the Fenfen. Yes. At that point, with the help of those drugs, I'd lost 100 pounds. And that's a stimulant for listeners. Yeah. Yes. I had lost 100 pounds. And of course, immediately, as soon as I went off the drug, I gained it right back. And that point in a few years after that, in 04, suddenly lost my mom due to complications from her own food addiction. I ended up going into this deep depression, deep place of of pain, which I ate. And I actually gained 200 pounds in four years. So it was deep from 2004 to 2008 when I started. That's that's the pain of relapse, isn't it? Deep. And, And it was... I was killing myself with food. I didn't want to think that or admit that at the time, but I see now, I mean, I was going through drive-thrus and ordering multiple meals and saying that it was for my family and I'm just sitting in the car and eating them all. I was ordering fast food or ordering, you know, delivery food constantly. It was just a constant barrage of high fat, high calorie. It's a really sad illustration of how medications can be helpful, but if you didn't learn those tools in that period of time, you get hit by something like the death of a family member and your relapse is painful. Uh, so what is your relationship with your food today? I mean, yes. you briefly have maintained that weight loss. You look really good, not just your weight, but your appearance, the way that you're speaking and whatnot. So what's your relationship <laughs> now with food? It's a respect, a deep respect. I have a respectful relationship, a symbiotic relationship of respect with my food. My food respects me and I respect it. For me, and again, this is my journey, I ended up going towards the, the plant-exclusive lifestyle and that really led me to a place of peace around food. It felt like I was being congruent with my values around food. And I had to educate myself deeply on how to make sure I can manage a food addiction with whole plant foods without going into the grains and into some of those other foods that so many plant-based eaters do and rely on. And I also had to be really, really mindful of whole food plants being you know, my main source of calories. I have to be mindful of the food. And that actually has given me a lot of freedom because now my body just stops when it's full. It's full of nutrients. It's full of water. It's full of fiber and it stops. I don't have to counter measure most of my food. Some of my nuts and things, of course, I measure hand to mouth foods. I measure high, high fat foods. I measure, but anything else I don't have to measure. And I make sure that I eat through sequencing. So I eat whole water filled fiber, rich foods first. And then those denser foods like a sweet potato or, or something like that, more starch related, I will eat later. So can you share with us how your personal recovery has kind of led you into now a professional journey called Real Food Recovery? Sure. So I began in 2020, I joined a recovery group for food addicts and found that I was called on a lot because of my history, because of my experience. I was called on a lot sort of as, hey, Jamie, how'd you navigate this? How'd you navigate that? And I had dabbled in coaching because I had many people coming to me during that from, you know, 2008 and to 2020 coming to me saying, hey, we noticed you lost some weight. How'd you do it? 
So I, I got my coaching certification, got my MBA, got into this world of personal development. And when I was in this addiction recovery program, I had folks saying, hey, you know, you've got you've got some lived experience that makes you a leader in this space. Could you help others? I began to do it organically. I began to do it professionally. And then it began, it yeah. came to a point where I thought I've got a lot of wisdom to share and I've helped a lot of folks and I'd like to keep doing it in a formal way. And I was in the recovery program with my soon-to-be podcast partner. I had just decided I really wanted to do a podcast the weekend before. Like it was a weekend in March. And I said, oh, gosh, I really want to do this podcast. I'm really feeling called. I know I want to write a book eventually, but I feel like the podcast is a natural first step. The Monday after this weekend that I decided I was going to do a podcast, totally out of the blue, Paige came to me and said, have you ever considered doing a podcast? And I was like, well, there it is. All right. <laughs> Guess we're doing a podcast. So we immediately linked up. We started the podcast the next week and it just went from there. What happened was folks from that that recovery community that we were in, that unfortunately there was some divisiveness inside the community. There was some leadership dysfunction in the community and members were seeing it. Members were coming to us saying, hey, Paige and Jamie, we love your podcast. We love what you're putting out there. Would you ever consider starting a community? And Paige and I were very intentional. We, we took our time, very intentional building real food recovery. We were so intentional even about the name and the symbolism and everything that we put into our branding because we wanted folks to know that, yes, it's an addiction and it was given to us, you know, in many ways by the food industry, by our families of origin, by the environments we're in. And in many ways, it's not our fault, but it is absolutely our responsibility to heal, to heal it, to recover from it. And we have the power to do it. And abstinence is part of it. Abstinence is part of it. Spirituality is part of it. Movement is part of it. Sleep hygiene is part of it. Those are parts of it. So can you share with the audience a little bit about, okay, I have this real food recovery community. What is that? Am I getting coaching? Am I getting food plans? Like, is it psychoeducation? What does that encompass? Oh, it's, it's a group coaching program primarily. So we focus on group coaching program methodology. So it's group coaching, meaning that you know Paige, myself, Heather Hewitt, and Shay Williams, the four of us are leaders in the community. We each have a different area of specialty. And we come together to coach either on our own or as a group, we coach our members. And we really do it through community check-ins and we do it through one-on-one -on -one work with our assigned members in between meetings. We have meetings daily, sometimes during the week, several meetings a day. And we give options for folks to come in and talk about what's happening in their real life as they're applying their recovery to real life. So we have not only the group coaching, we also offer masterclasses in nutrition and nutrition planning, food planning, nutrition education. Heather Hewitt is an amazing, amazing clinical nutritionist and naturopath, and she does all of the, the food work with our members. So members can seek Heather not only for those classes, but also for food plan building. We are, Paige and I are very fond of saying we're food plan neutral, but we're processed food free. We don't believe there's any one food plan for anyone. We like to stay away from the extremes. So we, what we've seen in our recovery journeys is the extreme side of, of all animal products and no plant fibers can be really, really damaging to our physical health. And we also see that, that you might have folks going in the extreme other side of all raw plant foods and that's not something that's sustainable for most, nor is it necessary. So we like to say all food plans welcome, right? But we don't want to look at the extremes. If we're looking at the extremes, we know that there's probably some psychological underpinnings that need to be addressed if, if, you were, if folks are coming in with those extreme plans. So you're plant-based, but that's just your personal choice. That's not necessarily your program. Correct. Correct. We are food plan neutral for that reason. 
Do we help people eat a lot more plants? Absolutely. Do we push a whole food plant-based agenda on them? No. Do we educate them and let them make their own choice? Yes. So who would be like, you would say necessarily like an ideal fit for this recovery community. If I'm somebody who's maybe not in a place where I'm ready to get to abstinence, can I join this community? So that's a great question. So we've actually evolved. When Paige and I got together, we have two different sides of the spectrum. So I wore my addiction on the outside and everyone knew that the minute they saw me that I was a food addict, maybe they didn't have that phrase, but that's what I was. Paige was in a normal, whatever that is, but a normal size, socially acceptable body shape all of her life. But she was plagued with the addiction to sugar. Sugar was her drug and all things with sugar in it. She could regulate other things, but sugar, she was not able to. So she was sitting in this right size body. I was sitting in this this morbidly obese body. We cover both sides of the spectrum. So for us, we like to say really anyone that struggles either outwardly or inwardly with the food. And we really look at most women by the time they're in their mid thirties are starting to see that their bodies are changing, that their metabolisms are changing. Most of our members are mid thirties until we've got members as, you know, in their seventies that are just knocking it out of the park. These are folks that maybe they don't know that they're food addicts, but they know they have a problem with food obsession. They know they can't stop thinking about food. They know that the food calls to them in a way that they're not able to say no to. So they might not be full-blown, I accept that I'm an addict and I'm going to move forward in abstinence yet, but they've come in knowing like, hey, my food behaviors are not sustainable the way they are today. I'm not able to moderate. I'm not able to, to not think about it. The other thing that we like to, we've built into our program is something called Real Food Mastery. We've just launched it. Real Food Mastery is the food program for real food recovery. So let's say somebody comes to us and says, Jamie Page, I'm not an addict, but I just need help with my food. Is there just a a meeting that I can come in and just do my food? And then maybe when I'm ready, I can think about recovery. But right now I got to get my food under control. Yes. And that's where Heather takes them through this real food mastery course. Again, she educates them. We don't push a food plan on anyone. We help them figure out a food plan that works for them. Works meaning sustainable. Mm -hmm. And so what is Heather's background in food addiction I think that's important probably for the audience is we've all been to nutritionists, dietitians who have no knowledge about right. food addiction, food addiction recovery. Right. So what makes her different? Heather has Heather has a very similar background to me in her, her weight swings. And she also has a very similar background in a lot of her trauma and dysfunction as a youth and a young adult. And she has a, so, so she's gained and lost a hundred pounds about four times maybe five. I don't want to misquote her, but at least four times she's gained and lost a hundred pounds. She has tried everything under the sun and she has realized how she needs to educate herself in how she not only approaches her own recovery, but helps others. So she has her clinical nutrition certification, but then she's also gone further into the holistic area to look at how body and mind affect recovery overall. She really glows with recovery in all areas. She has chosen a whole food plant-based or plant-exclusive lifestyle as well. That's what works, again, for her from a sustainability. But she has struggled with what was labeled at the time, you know, binge eating disorder and bulimia in her 20s and and I believe even in her teens. So she's got the lived experience. She's got the weight gain, weight loss experience, and then she's got the education on top of it. 
Do you guys find in your recovery program that sometimes people get just stuck on the weight and we live in diet culture, right? And so maybe I'm coming in and I'm just coming in to treat the weight, which is my symptom. And how do you work with clients around that when you notice that maybe they're not addressing the other aspects of their life, but it's just about surface body? Part of that is why we developed Real Food Mastery, because we know that there are some folks that are coming in with the whole spent of, I have to get my food under control and therefore my weight will be under control. And I I get it because I lived it. I lived it from 2008 until 2017, where I just thought it was all about my weight. And I didn't understand why I lost 200 pounds and was still wanting to eat all the cake, right? I couldn't get it. And then even when I had a food plan that worked for me, so I thought I was still trying to figure out how to get those other processed foods in. So when I thought it was all about the weight, I was not able to really focus on on all of the other bigger pictures. So if someone comes to me with the same lens, I realize it's got to be their journey. And I just try to share from first person, like, this is what I went through. This is what I realized. And until somebody is truly abstinent from their processed foods or their, you know, their sugar, flour, addictive foods, until somebody is abstinent, we can't even begin working on the other stuff. Just like, a, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a counselor, I'm working with an alcoholic, I can't really work with them deeply on the emotional recovery until they're clean of, of alcohol. And so what would working on someone with the other stuff look like in your program? The other stuff, meaning... Like all the aspects of their life, right? We think it's about the food, but it's not about the food. It's all the reasons we go back to the food. Exactly. We have what we call branches of recovery. So when Paige and I created Real Food Recovery, the podcast, we created it with branches of recovery. Really, we like to say that they're sort of dopamine substitutes or, or dopamine fixes that we don't get from food. So our branches of recovery, we have four core branches and we've talked about you know, not only food and movement and sleep and spirituality, we really specifically chose those four areas because we wanted to make sure that spirituality was part of the recovery journey. It's not to say that we're pushing a religious agenda or any kind of religion of any kind on anyone, but it's about every single person coming in, knowing that they have, not only if they have a place to go that's bigger than them, or a place to go for peace when life deals you a bad hand, that's accepted and encouraged. And for those that don't, it is the greatest gift, from my opinion, the greatest gift of this program that we're bringing people to a place where they're actually exploring their spirituality, whether it's time in nature, whether it's time you know, with loved ones, whether it's time with their animals, whether it's time in an organized religion, whatever that looks like for someone, We want them to know that they've got a place bigger than them that fills that hole in our soul that we thought we were going to fill with food. So that's a big part of our program. So that's why spirituality is a core element for us. The other branches of recovery that we really work on, then we talk about community connection. Community connection, we know, and Vera, this is something you even said on our podcast when we had you, if you could have done it by yourself, you would have by now. So we know the community is critical, not only from a mirror that it holds up for them, for the members, to look into, but also just in the shared and lived experience that's being, you know, thrown around in the room. Well, you know, uh, one of the things just to pick up on what I said that, that you're bringing up there is, and you did this yourself. I did a lot of my stuff trial and error, but even mm-hmm. when I was sober, it was white knuckling it. And it totally. wasn't until I had the community aspect that I could rest into that lifestyle without that uh, rage that you talked about. I had that too. Did you? Yeah, oh my God. Yes. Uh, I just look at the way that I behave with patients, with my partner, 
And now, if any of that comes out now, I'm usually pretty good at going, oh no, she's going off and it's time to do an amendment here. Yeah. Yes. So I yeah. totally get that. And that was about white knuckling it. Yes, totally. I white knuckled from 2008 all the way through until 2017. And in the course, you know, lost a marriage over it because I was trying, you know, I was white knuckling and trying to control everything. And, and you, you know, you can't live that way. I learned. And so community connection was huge. I didn't have a community. I didn't even have a connection to myself. Another area that we work on with our members is something called service to others, getting out of self and serving. It is huge. One of the ways that what we're doing at Real Food Recovery really is we're making self-leaders. We're creating self-leaders. And these leaders now are coming to us organically and saying, hey, I want to do more for Real Food Recovery. I want to do more for the community at large still suffering. What can I do? So one of the things that we did was we created a, a book study. This one of our members chose to lead a book study. She is amazing at it. And she's leading a book study on a book all about shame. And it's open to the public. It's free. It's a service that we're offering. So we've got service to others, self-talk and thought life. Huge, huge emotional awareness, actually diving into the things that we were trying to eat over and run from for all those years. Integration with our inner family. The inner family systems therapy approach changed my recovery game in so many ways. It started with adult children of dysfunctional and, and alcoholic homes. It led me to IFS, you know, the inner family, inner child, that whole journey led me to IFS and it's really been a game changer. So we weave components of IFS into our group. We also have a deep focus on personal values. So I do a whole workshop for our members new and out in the public for what, how to identify, connect with personal values and how to use them as the touchstone every time you feel like you're off. When you're in that dissonance and every time you, you know you're in incongruence with your values, how to get right back and get in alignment with those. We educate our members. We talk about the addictive substances, not only the foods, we're very clear on alcohol. We're very clear on recreational drugs. And we're very clear on, on even caffeine. We're very clear on these addictive substances take us away from our recovery. And should you consider a plan of abstinence for these substances? And how, how can we help you do that? And how can you see that it, the behaviors are exactly the same as the food? We also have a sense of purpose for our members. We encourage them to connect to purpose and creativity. Like on Monday night, I'm going to be leading a, a workshop for vision board creation, 2024 vision board creation, where we invite our members and the public to just come in for free and learn about why vision boards work and how to create one themselves. Great. So can you share with us a little bit about how you work with members around return to use or food slips or yes. relapse? So one of the things that, you know, I've heard it for years, a relapse is part of recovery. And I understand that that gentle, the gentleness, and I understand the compassion that we have for ourselves and for others when we live it that way. One of the things that I'm really excited about is this whole addictive voice recognition technique. Vera and I, we talked about it when you were part of this. It's something that I really respect from the rational recovery, smart recovery movement. There's not all aspects of the rational recovery movement that I subscribe to, but the addictive voice recognition is huge. So when some, a member comes to us and has a relapse, I help them identify the addictive voice. I help them go back and look at not only the changes they made in their routine or their habits, but the changes and maybe outside things that affected them, but what their thought life was like, they began to believe that addictive voice again that led them back into those behaviors of elapse. It's in the behaviors, it's in the thoughts first, the behaviors follow. And when I can help them identify a step behind or before the thoughts into the emotions, that's where everything sort of comes together for the member. And they're starting yeah, to see how, wow, my addictive voice is running this show and they have, it has my whole life. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for that. What do you think are some of the biggest obstacles in recovery that you see in some of your members? Biggest obstacles of recovery, I would say, are, you know, in the addictive voice recognition, the getting so overwhelmed with everything they want to work on that they, I call it, they get so consumed with looking at the mountain they have to climb that they forget that they need to take their eyes and put them right down in front and take one step. When I feel the overwhelm coming across from that member, I will remind them, you're looking at the mountain. You're looking at the mountain. Your addictive voice wants you to look at the mountain. I want you to be present, get in your body and take, look right down in front of you and take one step. What does that feel like? What does that look like? What does that sound like today? What are you doing today to take that one step forward? The next bite, the next meal. I remind them that every bite we take to the good or to the bad goes toward recovery or to a relapse. Every thought we make goes toward recovery or to a relapse. Relapses are not the end of the world, but they're huge learning opportunities. And over time, we want to get to a point where the relapses are fewer and further between and they're learning opportunities, but they're also big, huge red dashboard lights that we need to pay attention to for having the thoughts or behaviors that take us into those lapses. What about the uh, things that I see that can lead to relapse? And it is also an obstacle is the person is not losing enough weight quickly enough because that's mm-hmm. why they initially came to you. So how do you deal with that person that says, well, I've only lost five pounds and it's been three weeks and you know, what's the point? Yeah, good question. So the first thing we'll look at is we'll send them into either we've got our real food masterclass on nutrition. So we'll make them that available to them to help them really look and say, is your nutrition aligned with your goals? And many times what we're finding is that many of these folks are coming in under eating. They're under eating. They're they're thinking that they're binging and they're not. They're under eating or they're overeating and under reporting, mm-hmm. which is usually both sides of the same coin. But what we'll see is, okay, get real clear, real honest with what your food is. And then we want them to actually just start putting that in practice. Take your eye off the food and get into all these other areas of recovery that we want you to focus on. And watch what happens as your body takes care of the rest. That's the best way for us to focus on it from what we've found. But what about the person who's very focused on the weight? Because if I don't lose that weight, I'm not going to bother because this is just another thing that's not working. How do you deal with that? So that we bring in the REBT and CBT Mm -hmm. methodology is understanding the real reason underneath why they feel like the body is the only indicator of health. Weight, the scale is the only indicator of worth we go deep into into what that looks like. And we have many members, myself included, that have severed ties with scales. We have other ways that we measure, literally measure our body and our health markers that are not scale related because we explain to them that weight is one indication of health and not the indication of health. And it is certainly not an indication of healing. It is not an indication of worth. It is not an indication of, of success on your journey. It's simply just one data point of feedback And it's not even, you can drink a gallon of water and be up five pounds, but you know, it's totally um, random and it's not something that we need to base our success in recovery on. So I help them get to the psychological underpinnings of why they're connecting weight with weight loss with success. Okay. I often say it's actually the addictive voice, just getting leg in there because you can't consistently lose five pounds unless you're really uh, starting from high numbers on a regular basis. It's just the addict getting its foot in, in your most vulnerable space. But okay, now what about the person who is saying, we see this happening too, I'm eating the right food, but I never get full and I'm not eating processed food, but I'm still hungry all the time. Yeah. So 
two things, two ways of thinking it is we need to look at what they're eating. We need to, you know, do the work to help them to understand what they're eating, to look at, are they eating enough or are they truly being honest with what they're eating? Not in a negative way, but Hey, we want to help you help yourself. And we look at the fiber and water content of the food to make sure that they're getting the actual stress receptor response in their stomachs. That can be tricky when you've got folks coming in with a surgical background, right? Of, of some yes. kind of background in gastric bypass or other surgery. So we need, that's why we've brought Heather on board to make sure from a, a nutrition standpoint that they're getting what they need nutrient wise. The other thing we look at is, okay, if they're not feeling full, what does hunger and satiety really look and feel like? What foods promote satiety? Not satisfaction. What foods promote satiety? And can you incorporate those? If you, we've got many, many folks with a low carb background or a keto background that are really, really afraid of eating any kind of starch at all. And I get it. I understand it. So what we want to do is, again, we don't want to swing them all the way over to a starch based plan, but we just want them to understand that there's a lot of satiation that can be found from starchy foods. And you might be, there might be, and I am one of those people who does not derive satiation from dietary fat. I do not. I cannot. I can eat avocados, a lot of avocados, and will not feel satiated. But give me half of a sweet potato and I'm satiated. So for, for me, there's a difference. For some folks, they will get the dietary fats and feel satiety. Yeah. Now there's a starch. So there's the understanding that your physiological needs, your biological chemical reactions in your body, your body. Then there's the psychological. Okay, where are you feeling not enoughness? Where are you feeling this? What's happening? What's the history here? What's the self-talk like? Is that addictive voice coming back in at you, telling you it's not enough? Are you not eating with your eyes? Are you not really looking at your food and being present with your food? What's happening during the meal process for you? All those things have to come into play. Yeah. So, you know, we just did a podcast on fat and the professor was saying that he believed that there was a genetic predisposition that some people just simply having fat makes them hungrier, makes them want more as opposed to others where they actually feel true satiation. So there may actually be a genetic or yeah piece to that. But I guess one of the where I'm going with this question is this idea that we call volume addiction, where the person needs those stretch receptors. They need that fullness feeling and that it's actually not true fullness or hunger, it's something right. else, which I think yes. we're kind of addressing there. Yes, yes. And that's where we have to look at the psychological ramifications of the not enoughness. And again, I believe that I have some of those tendencies from my past, and I had to learn how to sequence my meals to make sure that I could get the appropriate stretch response, receptor response, and also get all of the nutrients that I needed in my body first so that I was eating for satiation last, eating for nutrient density first. Because I still am walking around, even though it's, of course it's smaller, but I'm still walking around with 450 pound person's stomach and a 450 pound person's fat cells. I've never had anything removed. I've never had skin surgery. I've never had liposuction, nothing. So for me, I'm walking around and I'm that's my history. So I need to be very mindful of how to activate my stretch receptors in a way that's high nutrient, low calorie density. For others who don't have that background, it's a different game for them. They might have satiation from fats. They might notice that their stretch receptors don't need to be activated. But for those that are like me that do, we look at, okay, what can we do to raise the nutrient level, lower the calorie density level, and what's sustainable? That's the biggest thing that like the 
history tells us everything. When I switched for me to the plant exclusive lifestyle, my binges stopped. My food swings stopped. My cravings stopped. I was able to eat normally for the first time in my entire life. Was I eating a large salad or a large, you know, plate of veggies with some starch and and some plant-based proteins? Yes. Was I eating a, a larger? Yes. But was I gorging myself on it? No. And more importantly, was I going out and binging in between meals? No. No. But you know what? I did hear you say that there are some foods, I think you mentioned nuts, where you do actually portion control. So so there is some acknowledgement of you do have to weigh and measure in some areas. Yes. And I also weigh and measure if I'm using any fats, like an avocado in a in a dish or something like that, I have to measure that avocado too. If I'm using any, and I don't cook with any oils, but if there's a recipe, something that has an oil in it, I have to measure that. I do not measure my flax or chia seeds that I have with my greens in the morning and water and some lemon juice in a smoothie. I do not measure those. They're usually about sometimes up to a half a cup to get my omega-3s. That's where I choose to get my omega-3s. But again, that's something that is, a, I, I measure them, but I, I've not seen any ill effects. But nuts or sunflower seeds or any other kinds of hemp seeds, all of that needs to be measured in a very small quantity, an ounce or less. Just out of curiosity, I'd love, because we don't get that many people who are very astutely aware of food addiction who are in the plant-based community. And I really want to hear more. I mean, there's Chef AJ and there's a few. You guys need to speak out more. And so can you just humor me here? Give me a day in the life of your food plan that's plant-based, that's food addiction aware. What do you have for morning, lunch, and dinner? So I work out first thing in the morning on a fasted state. It's just what I've done for years. It seems to work well. And because the minute... If I start to think and do anything else before I work out, the workout gets pushed. So that's the first thing I do. So I come out of that workout and I'm I'm usually looking for for some kind of food. So I'll have greens. I will fill a I will fill a blender with kale and and you know cabbages and other greens, spinach, whatever I have on hand. Raw, put that in with water and my flax or chia seeds, blend that up, and I will drink that. It's an acquired taste, but I I actually eat drink that with a sweet potato. So I actually have my sweet potato, half of one in the morning when I drink my green smoothie. And the reason is because my body's looking for for calories. And I know that on an empty stomach, having the greens first will really, you know, have the nutrient uptake just, you know, on fire. So like later in the morning, when I get hungry again, or usually by lunchtime, that's when I'll have either some, you know, I'll have lentils on a big salad, or I'll have beans on a big salad, or I'll have some cooked veggies on top of a bed of raw kale. I don't worry about where my protein comes from. I've never worried about where my protein comes from. It's in all the plants, it's in everything. The animals that I used to eat get their protein from the plants that I eat now. So it's really, once I learned that, it was easy for me to let go of of even eggs. And I will make sure that for dinner, it's a combination of some sort of raw, cruciferous blend of vegetables with some cooked veggies on top, I really love, there's so many great recipes, you know, plant-based cheese sauces and other things. If I'm craving something that cheesy kind of thing, you can do it easily. I will have cooked potatoes a couple times a day, but it's not the first thing I lead with. The first thing I lead with is that whole plant food, usually in a green form, steamed or raw. So what are your best hopes this year for real food recovery? Tell me, like, what are you excited about, about the community? So, you know, one of the things that we're really excited about, we we were approached, I was approached to write a book about my journey. And it was something I've, I've dreamt about for a couple of years now. 
put it out there in the world. And, and sure enough, a publisher came in. And I said at that point, I couldn't just write a book on my own because everything I would be doing would be sending it back to Real Food Recovery. So I went to Paige. We agreed to write it together. So we're actually in the final stages of partnering with an author that will help us do some of the ghostwriting because neither of us have written a book before and we'd like that kind of guidance. And then we're going to do an announcement. So we are writing a book, which we're super excited about, and that will be out this year. And the other thing that we look at, of course, is growing the community, not only growing the leaders in our community already, but growing the community overall. And that's happening. We're getting members now from listening to our podcast, some interviews like this. We're getting members and even Vera from your community on, on Facebook. We're getting folks that are coming in to our workshops and other free events that we're hosting. We're very, very grateful. And then from there, what we're looking to really do is keep growing the community and keep giving value-added solutions to the members and having the members that we have, these core members that have come in and we've gotten you know, 18 of them, have them kind of grow into leaders organically and to start serving the community at large out there that's still suffering. What does that look like? That's going to come to them and they'll come to us. Awesome. And can you share with us just about the podcast? Is it education? Is it guests? Like, what am I going to get when I tune into your podcast? It's all of the above. We've realized that there's absolutely a magic combination to have our own, you know, stories and our own experiences and our own presentation of education mixed in with guests. So we, we try to, to moderate, or, or excuse me, to vacillate between both. And when we have our own, you know, just Paige and I, we do a lot of education. We'll pick a topic, either a branch of recovery or a topic, and we'll dive deep into the research around it and the best practices of it. So our most one of our most popular episodes is called Be Your Own Guru. And we talk a lot about sort of finding, you know, listening to that inner voice and that inner guidance that you know is your true self, not the addictive voice. When it comes to food plans or when it comes to diet wisdom that's out there. We share really, really vulnerable stories about how we found our way. Uh, mine was, you know, when I was following the keto way of life of this particular influencer who was in her 20s, who never struggled with obesity and was telling you to eat plantains cooked in beef tallow. And I was like, I'm on board. And I was eating plantains cooked in beef tallow and gaining immense amounts of weight and being like, why do I not look like this 25 year old influencer who never struggled with her weight? So again, this is an example of like, I had this voice inside me saying, what are you doing eating plantains cooked in beef tallow? That's never been a food for weight loss for you. What are you doing? And I was able to say, okay, there was this inner wisdom that I had. Can I listen to it? Another one that we do deeply is this whole dashboard light metaphor, where we have this paradise by the dashboard lights, as we call it, in homage to the meatloaf song. And we talk a lot about when those dashboard lights, emotions come on, they, you know, to pay attention to them. What does that look like? What does that feel like? What's emotional processing? What's emotional metabolism look like? I was just going to jump in and say that that reminds me of a story where I followed the zone diet a while ago or a long time ago, where you had to do one third of carbs and one third of fats and one third of whatever. And I remember eating cheesecake, but I would put meat on it. And my partner said, you can't eat that much. That's not going to work. And I said, but it's in the thirds and that's the key. I mean, the things that we tell ourselves are just incredible. <laughs> Anyway, go ahead, Chrissy. Yeah, I love that. I can't even think about all of the plans and the things that I followed and it would change monthly and sometimes daily. So I'm sure the listeners can resonate with that. So where can our listeners find you? They can find us at the Real Food Recovery Podcast on all podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple, et cetera. And we can be found on the web at Real Food Recovery for you, the number four, the letter U.com. So realfoodrecoveryforyou.com. 
And that has links to the podcast, links to the community, links to our events that we do for free out in the world, as well as our masterclass, the Real Food Mastery Program, everything is there. Right. And we'll make sure to link that in the show notes as well for everyone. So we do have a signature question and it is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about food addiction, what would it be? I've heard this so many times, but it's true. It's not your fault, but it is your responsibility to recover. Mm, Love that. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here today with us, Jamie. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Jamie. Really appreciate your talk. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.